Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. This week's topical podcast is understandably dominated by Vladimir Putin's all-out assault on Ukraine, which has shocked and appalled most of us in equal measure, not only for the brutality of Russian's aggression, but the impotence of the Western response. To discuss what the UK and its allies should do next, we were very glad to welcome Conservative Home's deputy editor, Henry Hill, onto the podcast. Henry is a prolific contributor to CapEx and other sites, writing on a wide range of topics, but with a particular focus on constitutional affairs and the union. As well as the awful scenes in Eastern Europe, me, Henry and our deputy editor, Alice Denby, ran the rule over the end of Covid restrictions in England and Wales and the future of the BBC, which Henry has written an excellent piece for the site about, and I'd encourage you all to read that. Okay, uh, Henry, thank you very much for joining us on the CapEx podcast. Obviously, we are recording this on Thursday morning. There's only really one story in town, the full throttle Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, Just before we started recording, uh, Henry showed me a video of some helicopters attacking Ukrainian territory, which is really quite um, scary to witness, to be honest. I mean... Firstly, I mean, were you, how did you feel when you first saw this come through? I mean, shocked, surprised, in, in some way it's shocking, and the other, to, to actually see it. But for weeks, people have been saying this could happen. Yeah, I think the surprising thing is, I've, I've been as strong a critic as, as many people of the whole end of history fallacy, but it's still surprising how much I'd actually internalised a lot of its assumptions, because I just didn't think this would happen. You know, I saw the troop build up and everything else, but I saw what Putin had done in places like Georgia, where he's sort of done a very limited intervention, back the separatists, you know, South Ossetia and Abkhazia are now in some kind of weird limbo. I thought, same play, Donetsk and Luhansk. And instead, he's, he's launched a full-scale invasion. And you're right, all the signs were there, the build up of troops, his stated intentions, the nature of his regime. And yet I still just didn't think it would happen. And so this has been, really been a, a wake-up call for me because I've just realised that actually even somebody like me who criticises a lot of the sort of post-Cold War order, who attacks a lot of its assumptions, I still was fundamentally living in that kind of headspace. I think you're, that's a, been a common thing from a lot of people. Even people like, um, there's a guy called Leonid Beshitsky who writes for Bloomberg very well on Russia, and he said the same thing. He said, oh, looking at everything Putin has done for 23 years, the idea 
he would launch a full invasion like this is seems so out of character because as you say everything he's done up to here has been very low risk small little land grabs and incursions be it in as you say in Abkhazia um the war in Chechnya with which he started his presidency was essentially a very small area of the Russian Federation fighting you know bands of kind of Islamist terrorists and then Donetsk and, and Crimea where they met relatively little resistance the only way it's in which it's consistent with him is that it's it's surprising so his whole modus operandi has always been to kind of keep people guessing all the time um but yeah i mean alice what i mean what were your feelings when you first saw this did you did you think that this could actually happen or yeah, I think I echo everything you've said. We kind of saw the build-up. We, we knew this was coming, in a sense, and then you see it happening, and it just blows your mind. It's like something out of a another era. And I think, for me, it's just the kind of human aspect of it. You see those uh, clogged rows, people trying to flee, his stories of civilians buying guns, being prepared to defend their country. And it, that just brings home to you that this is a human tragedy that's happening to our European brothers on our continent. Um, it's astonishing. Um, yeah, I mean, I went to Kiev in 2019 and I'm seeing people from kind of people who do jobs like we do, but people who work in think tanks in Kiev saying they're going to go and join the army and fight the Russians just north of the city. Because, I mean, it's not very far from Kiev to the, the Belarusian border. You're talking about 100 kilometres or something. I mean, this isn't it's kind of is a bit about Britain, but it's not an essentially British story. But I mean, Henry, how much is there do you think that we could have done to have averted this action if Putin had set his heart on it you know well I think I think this is the this is the problem the it's there there are lots of legitimate questions to ask about whether or not the United Kingdom should have done more to crack down on on things like Russian money earlier but I think that it is delusive really to think that that would have stopped Vladimir Putin's government doing this because ultimately, he, you know, there are lots of senior people in Russia who like sending their kids to British private schools and coming and having flats in London and everything else. It's not Putin. And no. it's not the people immediately around Putin. And generally speaking, if you isolate a regime like this, you know, look at Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Um, isolating Saddam Hussein didn't stop him invading stuff. It just meant that the, the logic of that regime became even more internally focused. It, it, was, it was navigating purely by sort of those internal priorities and I think it's also important to remember that some of the Russians who do end up out in the West are opponents of the regime and sometimes I think there's a danger that, that people including me who aren't particularly familiar with Russia we adopt this kind of monolithic yeah. view of it where every Russian is yeah. part of Russia yeah. um, and an agent of the regime when in fact a lot of those people the reason that they're out here is because they you know they have they're not pro-Putin. There was perhaps a hinge moment for Britain though following the Skripal attacks I mean, ish, yes, but uh, but again, Crimea as well, I think. All of these things, when you think back on it, you can see how they lead up to where we are now. He, he did assassinate people on British, on, on British, on British soil. He, he did seize territory by force. I think there were all sorts of areas that could potentially have been hinge points. And I think, again, the fact that we, we didn't see what was coming is, is an artefact of the fact that we simply didn't believe that we lived in this kind of world. And so every time Russia did this, we treated it as an exception. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for the, the idea that the kind of leitmotif of Western policy for the last 30 years has been complacency. Been thinking, oh, it'll never happen to us as China, and to an even greater extent than Russia. I mean, I've been talking to friends in China today who are saying the Chinese TV is absolutely reveling in this. 
saying, ha ha, look how stupid the Americans are. They can't do anything. And um, the people I was talking to are very concerned. They were like, wait and see what, what China has in store. If you think, if they look at this and say, this is what the West does when you try and take other people's territory, which is nothing, then what message does it send? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of why I brought up the Skripals, because that was an attack on British territory, to which I think our response was a little bit flaccid. And I have to say, it was Boris Johnson who was Foreign Secretary at the time. He tried to get a kind of bigger European response of sanctions, and he failed. But that wasn't even the first poisoning they did. There was also... Mm, very Lithuania far Co. from the first yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Yeah, Lithuania was it? Yeah, precisely, with, with, with polonium. So, so, this, so they have been doing this for a very long time. And I, I agree with you. I think that it's remarkable the way in which so much Western thinking seems to have just operated entirely inside this, this, this idea that our values are something to be taken for granted, you know, a pet peeve of mine anyway. But I saw, I saw some analysts in the build-up to the invasion of Ukraine, you know, last month when it wasn't obvious what, what, what Putin definitely would do. Yeah. And they were saying things like, oh, Vladimir Putin wants to, wants to resolve this by force. Unfortunately for him, it's 2022. <laughs> um, and, 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 and that means nothing. You know, they're basically saying, like, Vladimir Putin has a gun. Unfortunately for him, this is a knife fight, you know? <laughs> um, it's just this absolute... And, and, you, and you still see it today. I, I, so there were British politicians suggesting that we should impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Now, a lot of these things, I think, I think, I think the issue with a lot of the, you know, no-fly zones, sanctions... All these things that we've become used to using as tools of, of international diplomacy, we've been applying them to countries that can't hit back, mm. basically. You know, if we impose sanctions on Iraq or Sudan, British people won't notice. Key British industries won't be affected. If we impose a no-fly zone over a country that barely has an air force, we're not going to suffer any casualties. Now, the logic of trying to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, where air superiority is being absolutely critical to the Russian advance, is that we're prepared to shoot down Russian jets. Are we? I don't. I don't think we are. And the alternative is looking like fools if we impose a no-fly zone that Russia then ignores. So I think that there is this real. I understand the urge from British politicians to want to do more, but we have to accept the fact that we have neglected our military for twenty years. Most of our European partners do not really have functional militaries in the sort of expeditionary international sense, and. If we, if we, it's important that we rebuild those capacities so that we can stand up for places like Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, but it's too late to yeah. come to the direct military aid of Ukraine. We can sell them weapons, we can't put troops on the ground or in the air. I mean, yeah, I think, I, I do slightly wonder, I, I felt that the, the sanctions that the UK put in place earlier this week were, were pretty pathetic in the sense there were only three oligarchs were sanctioned, so it's two of the Rottenbergs who are like Putin's closest confidants. They've known him since he was a teenager um, and a couple of banks. But it doesn't feel like there's a very coordinated response at the moment. I mean, to me, I feel like we're, we're slightly... We're, we have a slightly British thing of kind of hating on ourselves a lot when, to me, the villain of the piece here is Germany, not Britain. I mean, they got into bed with Russia. They built Nord Stream 2 with mm. them. Uh, you know, watching the pictures of Merkel and Medvedev, like, signing together, smiles all around. I mean, they knew who they were dealing with. You know, it, it feels to me like that is the kind of... It's a, an epic failure of statecraft. I mean, this is... What I'm wondering is is how effective can sanctions be? Obviously, we're a very globalised uh, global economy, of which Russia's a crucial part. So you might have thought that sanctions could hurt it, but it seems like they factored it in. They must have assumed that Nord Stream 2 would go up the creek and they did it anyway 
So the, Ru- yeah. the Russians have, have restructured their economy in such a way as to allow yeah. them to Fortress Russia. Yeah. Fortress Russia. They've got one of the yeah. largest foreign currency reserves in the world. Now, obviously, that won't last forever. But I think their assumption is, you know, Russia is an authoritarian state with one government. The West, quote unquote, is a collection of dozens of countries, all of which have different economic priorities, different capacity to withstand uh, economic and political pain. And so I think the assumption from Russia is, right, if they can start shutting down aerospace, high-level manufacturing, if they can control the international gas market, they're also one of the key world exporters for wheat, which is important if you like eating bread, which many people do. So, yep. the, the, so I think their assumption is that, you know, so you, they saw how hard it was to corral Western countries towards sanctions in the first place. Now it's to, it's to Germany's credit that they have uh, delisted uh, Nord Stream 2 or whatever it is that they've technically they've, done. Uh, deregistered, deregistered it or something it. like that. Or they but, haven't registered it. But, yeah. you know, they've spent the last 10 years with the Russian regime being what it was, building it up. And they've recently shuttered their yeah. perfectly serviceable nuclear power mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, nuclear yeah. power system, which leaves, which leaves Germany much more dependent on Russia than it could have been. But in the United Kingdom, we, we, we closed our offshore gas reserves and we also haven't built new EU. The, the strategic failure of Western countries, people focus on the fact that NATO hasn't been meeting its defence spending commitments. That's true, it hasn't. But the strategic failure is much worse. We've allowed, it's like China with rare earth minerals. We've allowed authoritarian countries to strategically acquire vast leverage over our energy sectors and our manufacturing economies. And that's going to take decades to fix. Let's just make the kind of counter case for a bit. I mean, what if he has actually made a terrible misjudgment here? Because there are various... I, I, personally, I think it's wishful thinking, but there are various Russian commentators saying this is his, like, this is the beginning of the end for him because it's going to screw up the Russian economy. There will be big sanctions and so on. A lot of middle-class Russians have invested in the the domestic stock market since 2014. Part of the Fortress Russia thing is that they are... That sort of, in a weird way, exposes them because they're on their own and they're not interlinked. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, do we think that's just wishful thinking or is there an element that he might finally have miscalculated? Well, I think the issue in a country, in a a country, in in a system like Russia, is that it's very hard for the public to get rid of the government. You really do need, you know, a lot of gov- authoritarian governments that fall to protests, basically, when we get right down to it, allow themselves to fall to protests because the will to hold on to power isn't there. This is what sets China apart, right? China was prepared to run people over with tanks. And so Tiananmen Square, that great moment in history, which we thought would lead to a liberal China, just didn't happen. So the question is, is Vladimir Putin prepared to cede power if there are, if there are mobs on the streets of Moscow? I certainly don't think he is. And then the question becomes, are there elements within the national security apparatus that runs Russia that would be prepared to move against Putin and have the power base to do it? Now, I'm not a criminologist. I don't know. It'd be nice if there was. But looking at those meetings where Russia's senior most generals, spy masters and ministers were all obviously incapable of treating Vladimir Putin as an equal. It was like watching an audience with the emperor from pre-17. 20 metres away as well, which enhanced 20 metres away, you know, he's not quite literally issuing Yukazis, but there's definitely this sense of, like, the Tsar commands, right? Yeah. I just just don't think, personally, from a non-expert view, I just don't think that there's going to be the centre of power there to overthrow him. No, I mean, Alice, did you watch the the Security Council 
meeting. It was I've seen quite a clip fascinating. Of it I, to I watch. didn't watch the whole thing. I'm not a Russian speaker like you. I yeah, I watched it and I was kind of Narishkin, who's the head of the the kind of SVR, which is the sort of internal spying thing. You see this guy like almost trembling with fear, and uh, yeah, it is. I mean. What do you, I mean, just the sort of aesthetics of Putinism I find quite interesting because it's like he's reinvigorating. He's gone a hundred years back and into the kind of imperial era mm. of Russia. I thought this was one of the most interesting things about his rhetoric because I've always pegged Putin as a Soviet nostalgist, right? You know, he came up through the KGB, thought the fracturing of the Soviet Union was a, was a disaster, which, which is not an uncommon view amongst Russian nationalists. But it was really interesting the way that in his rant, speech, whatever you want to call it, um, he explicitly reached back to the Russian Empire. He yep. explicitly attacked the Bolsheviks and Lenin for the policy of creating the national SSRs in the 1920s. You know, his argument was, if you want to decommunize Ukraine, well, the communists invented Ukraine. Um, it's properly part of the patrimony of the Emperor of Russia, and we're having it back. It was just... You know, that's always been the logic of a certain kind of Russian nationalism, yes. But to see it being explicitly argued from the presidential throne of Russia that they're just going to do the Russian Empire again. You know, and strategically it's fascinating as well because, you know, you'd expect, based on how Putin used to act, he always had very precise, narrow, targeted justification so as not to spook people. So, you know, he was stopping Georgia crushing South Ossetia and Abkhazia. He wasn't doing anything in the Caucasus. But now, every single country that used to be part of the Russian Empire, that's, that's the Baltics, Finland, uh, yeah. Ukraine, the Caucasus, every one of the Stans, um, except Afghanistan. Um, Sorry, everyone who used to be part of the Soviet Union. Everyone who used to be, except everyone who used to be part of the Soviet Union plus Finland, because Finland right. was part of the Russian Empire. Sure. Um, they're now all, the official position of the Russian government is that they're not really countries and that uh, Russia is coming for them. It's just an extraordinary step. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... I feel like there's going to be that sales of um, history books, of Ukrainian history books are probably going through the roof. I, um, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but if any of our listeners do want a good rundown of actual Ukrainian history, then there's a, a great book called Borderlands, which is by a journalist called Anna Reid. And she lived in Ukraine in the 90s, just after the Soviet Union. And then she updated it in, I think, about 2015, after everything. So it's quite a good look back on what's happened in the last 20 years. Anyway, um, Anyway, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we were talking about, here in the UK, we were talking about the, the kind of the end of the COVID era, because the final restrictions came off, I believe it was on Monday afternoon, wasn't it? And Alice, you've, you'll, you'll have a piece up on what will be today, on Friday, on the CapEx working about this. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of quite ironic that tanks have rolled into Ukraine in the same week that we here have declared victory in our domestic battle against COVID. Um, but I suppose what I was reflecting on is that it doesn't feel like we're having a mass kind of collective bonfire of masks and, you know, we're all singing ABBA's The Winner Takes It All. It feels like quite a sort of grim moment of reflection. And I think that's probably inevitable given, you know, the incredible kind of grinding sacrifice of the last two years. But I think it's also now dawning on us actually how much the pandemic has cost us. You know, the imminent cost of living crisis we're facing, the tremendous amounts of borrowing, the huge tax burden that's coming up going to be bigger than, you know, the heyday of state socialism under Attlee. Um, 
And, you know, the MPs... And, and, and meanwhile, Boris Johnson is still facing a leadership crisis. We're still waiting to see what the Met Police are going to say about that. Um, and so uh, I think it's all a kind of quite a grim situation, really, and where we should be celebrating that we're not living under the yoke of COVID anymore. We're now kind of facing the aftermath, and I think it's worth reflecting on decisions that were made and whether in the final analysis we do think that the Prime Minister got all the big calls right. Yeah, Henry, what's, what's your view? If you look back on the last two years, what's your kind of elevator assessment of how the government has handled things? <laughs> hmm. There's a lot to get uh, in there. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot to get in there. I think, I think I always caveat this because whilst I believe that it's important that politicians who are democratically accountable make those decisions, I'm not an epidemiologist and therefore I think that a lot of those decisions were made based on information and, 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 and models and so on, which I'm not really qualified to, to properly assess. Um, I think you, you can point to any number of, of, of early mistakes. I think from the point of view of my specialism, the fact that we ended up with a fractured nation-by-nation uh, nation response rather than a joined-up UK response to the pandemic was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, we saw all kinds of measures to, in, to support vulnerable people introduced late or not at all in Scotland and Wales because the Scottish and Welsh governments refused to sign up to the Westminster systems that were already running. Um, and I think that's definitely something that Lord Frost has said that that, that needs to be that that needs to be looked at. I also th- I think the reason it's so anticlimactic is because it's uh, the leaving has been so dragged out, mm-hmm. right? Compared to there wasn't a moment when suddenly we were, we were completely in lockdown and then all of a sudden the sun rose, the front doors opened, and we emerged into the streets. You know, for me, the big lockdown is over moment was the first night I went clubbing um, last year. And, but there were still restrictions. It was, it, I, think, I think for everyone, the, the moment the pandemic ended will be, will be different because it will be, when was it that the thing that you loved the most that it was stopping you doing yeah. was allowed again? Was it eating out? Was it seeing a vulnerable family member? Was it you know, hitting the dance floor? Whatever it was. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And so I think that's one of the interesting things about it is that compared to, say, VE Day or, you know, we compare it to previous crises where there's this one big collective moment that everyone shares, 
the the coming out of COVID as opposed to the experience of lockdown is actually quite an atomized and personal experience. Yeah, I mean, I think my my one was probably like last June or July when I went to the the European Championships semi-finals and there was sixty thousand people in a football ground. That felt like it felt very post COVID. Yeah, no one seemed to give a shit about anything like COVID related masks or anything like that. And in hindsight. Maybe there was, you know, we could have been slightly more careful. But one thing that strikes me is that every single time, and we've seen it this week, every single time the government does anything to loosen restrictions, even though we've already had like hardly any restrictions left, the same people line up to tell you that this is a disaster. This is reckless. This is, you know, I just think that people's kind of tolerance for that messaging must is at rock bottom now. Yeah, I don't actually... I don't, you do get some voice. I mean, Scotland's sort of trying to hold on to a few remaining restrictions, as they always do. But it, I do feel like the general public has yeah. a sense that they not, can't be bothered with this anymore. And you, um, and you can see that, the, you can see that the, um, the people striking those notes are not getting the kind of positive social feedback they used to get at the start of the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. One of my favourite little bits of Twitter at the minute is those kind of anonymous accounts which uh, will find a quote from somebody saying, oh, the government has blood in its hands, you know, fine, you want to go clubbing, but I just don't like killing people. And then three weeks later, they're at a crowded comedy launch being like, <laughs> oh, having a great time. And so I think the social, the social mood has sort of decisively shifted and that makes those, those voices a lot less dangerous from the point of view of people who want sensible policy than they would have been previously. Yeah, and I think that that is feeding into people kind of communally seeming to agree that actually in the end the government's done a good job and I think we need to be sceptical about that so there are two things where people are like okay Boris's defender say he got big calls right on vaccines and on not locking down over Christmas now they're kind of the same thing like well one is an artifact to the other so I think vaccines, you know, obviously the rollout was great and we were one of the first countries. We got a massive head start. But to be honest, Europe caught up very quickly. We were very proud of ourselves, but, you know, Italy's ahead of us now. So actually our vaccine rollout wasn't that exceptional. And on real refusal to lock down, well, that was a function of him being so politically weakened. It wasn't a, de- it wasn't a decision. He couldn't get it through cabinet. I mean, where are we on that? I mean, the last few weeks of our kind of more topical podcasts have all been dominated by speculation about the the PM's future. I mean, Henry, do you think, how do you see that panning out? Do you think the fact that we're going to be focused on Ukraine and Russia for the foreseeable will help him? I'm not saying that that is more important than the fate of Ukrainians, to be clear, but I'm just in a purely kind of logistical political sense. I think, yeah, this is a big concern that that I have as, as as, you know, a supporter of the Conservative Party, albeit often through gritted teeth, is that there was always a danger that Tory MPs would conflate Partygate not being in the news, which is always going to happen eventually, because even without Vladimir Putin, there will always eventually be more news, with the idea that it's fixed and sorted. And I think what's happened is, you know, events in Russia, and I understand, you know, why the Tory party wouldn't want to have something as introspective and sort of self-indulgent as a leadership contest in the middle of a great international crisis. On the other hand, Boris Johnson is in no way essential to anything that's happening with Ukraine. Um, but the problem is that if you look at the recent, most recent YouGov figures, all of Boris Johnson's personal ratings are going down. You know, trustworthiness, efficacy, you know, connects with people like me. All of those ratings are still declining, even though Partygate is no longer on the front pages. So I think there's a risk that the police report comes and goes. We're still in a crisis. Tory MPs don't get their act together. He stays. And they think, oh, the crisis is past. We're talking about other things. 
actually the public have just made up their minds. Mm. You, know, you know, John Major was personally very popular, but the public had made their mind up about the Tories and they got crushed. This sort of stuff sticks. And I think the Tories, Tory MPs really do need to keep their powder dry. And when those police reports come in, they will have to act because otherwise Boris will be leading them into a general election in 2023 and they will just be needlessly, in my view, in my view based on current evidence, needlessly handicapping themselves. It's, it's got to be said how incredibly lucky he's been. I mean, so the, the fact that the Met Police got involved meant the sort of parliamentary moment felt like it passed. Now we've got another crisis on top. It's, his career is just one of, like, lucky escape after lucky escape, isn't it? Well, what'll happen is the police report will come in and then the Queen will die of COVID. Yes. Um, and, oh, no, God, I'm... we haven't even thought yeah. about the Queen. Yeah. yeah it's just... um... Obviously, it's treason to conceive of the death of the monarch. So, um... <laughs> yeah, and Alice is a very convinced monarchist. So, um, <laughs> so am I. Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly a diehard Republican either. I'm just not that interested in the, in the royal family. But I do like the Queen. I'd like to put that on record. Uh, I mean, it's, um, it's, generally, it's generally healthy for any institution to just be, like, not very interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a nation that's full of people passionately interested in the monarchy is, like, in trouble. The thing, <laughs> I, I think if, if she passed away, obviously it would be bad on its own terms and very, very sad, but I think that the nation will go into a proper, like, two-week meltdown that I'm, I don't think I'm quite prepared it, yeah, for. It would, be, it would be quite something. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking... Well, one of the... One of the if, if, let's not speculate about the Queen Dyke, um, but we've been talking about news, we've right. been talking about what's on the news agenda, and... Henry, for your sort of section of this podcast, we each we get our guests to kind of choose a story of their own. Um, you've written a piece for us this week about the BBC, which I think was really interesting because a lot of people on the right are now kind of reflexively defund the BBC as their position. There's a campaign of that name. But your view is that that would be basically sort of the Tories would be shooting themselves in the foot to do that. Yeah, uh, I, one, just because it would be very unpopular. Um, and, you know, we live in a democracy, the fact that it would be very unpopular matters quite a lot. But also because one of the tensions and one of the strange things about the, the, the quote-unquote culture war is the fact that the, the allegation is the Tories are very good at winning elections, but they're not very good at winning power in cultural institutions. Now, because the BBC is publicly funded, that actually means that winning elections gives you some element of power over that cultural institution. So that's important and worth keeping, even if you don't take... And I, I am generally pro-public service broadcast, public service broadcasting, even if not necessarily on the BBC model. But even if you don't take that view and you're an entirely cynical Tory operator, you should want to maintain some kind of government link to the BBC because you can win the government and you do win the government. Whereas the odds of you raising a generation of little Tory journalists who are going to spend 20 years climbing the corporation and then return it to Reef or whatever, whatever that means um, is for the birds. Yeah, I always find it very strange when I see this kind of hysterical, very social media, typical of social media, the reaction that, ah, the Tories are going to kind of take over this institution or that by simply installing Paul Dacre at Ofcom or something. They're suddenly going to change the values and prejudices of our entire media class, which are, you know, of the centre left, I'd say. It's, it's not yeah. an unreasonable thing to say. I think most journalists yeah. would, would admit that. Um, let's get into this idea of kind of... So in your piece, you suggest that one thing you might do is kind of hive off the bits that you think are public service broadcasting. I mean, Alice, what would you say the best things, forget the things you find frustrating about the BBC, what are the things do you think do 
give a kind of public service that we, we ought to be retaining and that there's a case for having kind of state funding of some kind for? I think this is, I think it goes to what you were saying about uh, the idea of defunding the BBC being so unpopular. Everybody has something about the BBC that they love, whether it's you know, EastEnders or Strictly Come Dancing, or for me, I love the nerdy shows like Antiques Roadshow. I think that's real public service broadcasting because you couldn't do it commercially because it's too uncool. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think the BBC will just have too many defenders. There are too many, everybody has something about it that they love. And if you try to attack that bit, people will say, oh, no, you know, you could get rid of, I don't care about sports matches, but you have to keep the thing that I like. And that's why you'll never work by, you'll never win by attacking the BBC. It's too popular. But do we do we think it's it's programming or news or, for me, for example, the kind of jewel in the crown of the BBC is the world service. It's something that gives us this immense reputation. Everywhere in the world, people can listen to it. I also think the BBC's um, foreign language stuff is really good. Like, I go on the BBC Russian page quite often, and the quality is really good. They have interesting stuff. It's well-written. And I think it's also kind of... It can be... For a small country, it helps us punch above our weight in that sphere, where we're already quite strong. Um, in a big so that's my I mean that's my personal kind of prejudice I mean Henry what do you think I mean I'd probably put the world service in as well and I think actually it was actually whilst writing pieces like this and thinking about this question I actually realised it's a way more interesting debate than do we move it onto a subscription model or not so for example public service broadcasting does that mean on you know as Alice mentioned you know stuff that couldn't get made commercially yeah um if so, what? You know, the, the old the old Rethian value, and I say this in the piece, the old Rethian value was it was about transmitting a quite sort of self-confident culture that had the, that had a general consensus around it. We don't live in that kind of culture anymore. And so the question is, if you're going to be having programming that's transmitting, uh, you know, philosophical or ethical values on a non-commercial basis, whose are they? But then there's also the question of, you know, sport. Now, sport absolutely can run commercially. So the argument is, why should the BBC have it when when that's when that can be done commercially? But the counter argument to that is that when sport was on the BBC, that allowed everyone to watch it, yep. not just people with certain subscription packages. Not you know everyone could watch the Test or whatever the the big the big match was, and that and that made those more communal moments that helped to bring the country together. So is there actually an argument that things that could be commercial but nonetheless should be available free, or at least for a universally levied tax or charge and so I actually don't have an ideal model for what I want the BBC to look like I think it's an important national institution as a unionist I think it's one of the few British institutions we have left and should be defended on that basis I do think it's too big I think it does too much I think there are legitimate arguments about it squeezing out independent local press especially Mm. and putting local papers under huge pressure but for me, questions about what exactly the BBC should look like are downstream of this fascinating debate that the Tory party just hasn't had about what it thinks public service journalism is. Because nobody's going to buy it if you think it doesn't exist and that it should all just be private because that's not the kind of country we are. You also get uh, this quite confusing debate about BBC bias and its news coverage. So everyone on the left thinks that the BBC is really right wing and everyone on the right thinks that it's really left wing. And uh, frankly, that probably shows that it's doing a good job of being balanced. But I, I also think kind of in the kind of social media age, the idea of unbiased news is getting increasingly irrelevant and we've seen a lot of the BBC's senior journalists like Andrew Moore and Emily Maitlis leaving in order basically to express their real views and you know, no surprise what those turn out to be. I, I think the issue I've looked at I've looked at I think one thing that critics of the BBC often do is they attack the BBC when they mean sections of the BBC's news coverage. 
Because what that, that sounds insane, because if you're an average voter who doesn't, you know, tune into this as excessively as we do, when someone attacks the BBC, you, they're just attacking whichever bit they like the most, you know, and whereas there is a problem, actually, specifically a problem. It's not a huge world-defining problem, but if you look at polling on attitudes and trust towards BBC news coverage, there is a, there has been a collapse in, in conservative supporters faith in BBC News coverage that is not reflected by Labour or Liberal Democrat voters. And there, you know, if we want to avoid ending up in a situation like America, where basically everybody gets their news from their own places, and it just creates completely parallel cultures that, that have little in common with each other, I think one of the, thing, the, one of the good things the BBC does, ideally, is provide a news service that will irritate everyone because everyone's still watching it. Mm. And so I think that it's important that those of us who, especially those of us on the right who do value the BBC, we don't try and pretend that the problems don't exist. I think there is an issue with its news coverage that would need to be solved, but that's, that you're not going to solve that by, by hacking it to pieces or selling it off. Yeah, one of my kind of hobby horses, which I wrote about in my last weekly briefing for the site, is that we have this Ofcom rule about uh, impartiality and balance. And one of the things I think, and it's not necessarily a political point, is that sometimes people in newsrooms, not just the BBC, because all of broadcasts have these rules, mistake impartiality and balance. Mm. So there'll be a situation that is very obviously one thing, and they'll both sides it. Mm-hmm. So it's the equivalent of getting a flat earther on with a geophysicist, mm-hmm. right? And I saw this particularly, to return to what we talked about at the start, some of the BBC coverage of the Ukraine stuff has been parroting the Kremlin's propaganda to a degree unwittingly, because what they think they're doing is just faithfully reporting lines, which, yeah, kind of, but you, there's a problem if, it, if the whole purpose of the Russian message is to get that uncritically out in the Western media to provide a kind of echo chamber for its own mendacious version of reality. So yesterday, for example, on the BBC website, it said uh, Ukraine rebels ask for Russian support or something like that. Yeah. And there are so many assumptions built into that headline, none of which really... And again, people, I think, have this idea that there are breakaway regions and rebels and that they're Russian-backed separatists when they've been... Russian military personnel in that area all along. And that is what it has been. So in my view, an impartial rendering of that, of that situation is not a balanced one where Russia gets 50% of yeah. the airtime the air to say what it wants. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it's true. And it's, it's, but it's, it's a formidably difficult problem to make because, you know, if you, were, if you, had, a, if you had a different inclination... Um, and you, how, how, imagine you reported that differently. Imagine if you said, like, Russian-occupied eastern Ukraine. Well, you know, somebody could come and complain to you and say, actually, there are, nominally, um, <laughs> you know, these governments that are run by people who were resident in that territory before Russia, you know, before the rebellion. The rebels are fielding troops, local troops and militias and so on. Yep. And so they'll say, you know, you're... You're feeding. You're just parroting NATO attack lines by saying that these 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 these, these organisations, which are in fact you know which are Russian run and have always been Russian run, but do have an, a, a corporate existence of their own to an extent. If you just describe that as if you if you don't say that they're rebels, well, I think they are kinder. Yeah. Um, they're Russian. They're Russian backed and have been from the start. There have been Russian troops on the ground in Donetsk and Luhansk from the beginning, but they are rebel, and it's it's very very difficult to get that balance right. And I think that the problem for 
it's as Alice says, the, the problem is this idea of having completely infallibly impartial news. Yeah. It's just, it's not doable. Everyone, you know, I, I, when I was doing my sub-training, when I first did my journalism course, and we were talking about, ah, everyone wants neutral news that's completely separated from opinion. And the teacher was like, cool, fine. But even if the copy is completely neutral, mm-hmm. um, the order in which you present stuff, the headline, the choice of picture, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to do. And because we've got the privilege of the BBC, this privileged position, there's an especial weight of expectation on its shoulders, which it will never always manage to meet. Yeah, I, I have to say, um, one of the great pleasures of working for a unapologetically right-wing outlook is that no one will ever accuse us of striving for studious neutrality. You do have this kind of meme that like people always come back pack at you on you know Twitter and Facebook and things being like hmm you work for a conservative think tank bit biased it's like well, we're going to put out conservative-leaning pieces because that's literally what we do. Yes, yeah, so like, I sometimes get, get called a mouthpiece for the right as if these aren't my real opinions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're actually all socialists, but we're paid so much. Yeah. We, get, but, we, get that, we get that at Conholm. Oh, especially the, the extra problem at Conholm is people who think we're actually run by the party. And we're just like, spend five minutes reading the site. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, there's no earthly way the party would pay us to, to put this content out. But yeah, but yeah, it, it is. And I think that actually in... in, in a better way to get a healthy media balance is not to rely on one sort of theoretically impartial monolith. It's to have different outlets which have are quite open about their political leanings, balance that with a commitment to journalistic ethics and high intellectual standards, and then make sure that you personally read both sides. The other thing, sorry, I'll just jump in, is that one thing the BBC has which does set it apart is the kind of the resources it has, and that's... For commercial, I worked at ITN for a little bit and seeing the, the relative amount of resources they had to cover something. Just to give you an example, again, I'm afraid coming back to Ukraine. In 2014, which was when I was there, my first day was when uh, um, Russia annexed Crimea. ITV News had a crew in Donetsk, but after a few weeks, they just couldn't afford to keep holding them up in a hotel there. So they just basically stopped being able to cover that thing. Whereas having a big kind of state-backed news thing means we have the resources to put people on a semi-permanent footing in these places. So, you know, you can talk about the angles, but at least they're there meeting people, recording stuff. So I think that, that and coming back to the public service thing, that is something that maybe is worth keeping um, from the BBC. I was actually just going to think we can kind of loop back to the start and we've got a bit of a row brewing about the role of Russia today in public life, which I think is kind of ironic. We've had Keir Starmer calling for it to be shut down when, of course, his predecessor was <laughs> a regular watch star it guest. For, watch it for ballot. Uh, much more interesting than BBC, I think, was what well, I, I Corbyn think, said I, I, about I, I, it. I think the problem with, with and, and lots of people have said this, the problem with banning Russia today is that no one watches Russia today. Yeah. Um, whereas <laughs> Russia would use it as an opportunity to ban the BBC, which a lot of Russians do you know mm. consume i wouldn't be surprised if they just do that anyway now they never need any real pretext they ban the british council they some friends of mine when i was living there got chucked out for quote unquote breaking fire regulations this is the very this is the kind of the the, the party line for any time they want to throw an organization out is the, there's some sort of fire regulation that's been broken God. but yeah i think so alice you think banning russia today would be cutting off our nose to spite our face I don't actually have a strong view on it. I just think it's kind of funny that it's becoming a political football um, and it's an amusing bit of Labour positioning. 
Where would we go for the Alex Salmon show? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Is George Galloway still on yes. there? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I might have to tune in. I, if I ever tune into Russia Today, it's just to have a laugh. Yeah. Um, but my worry is that, if, if in a weird way, paradoxically, raising it and making it a big talking point, people are going to go, hmm, what's this? And actually start watching it. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, on that um, rather desultory note, we will have to leave it. Um, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. It's thank been a, a great session. Alice, thank you as ever for thank you. doing your job. Um, <laughs> and I just do want to say, if you've enjoyed listening, please do leave us a review because I think yes. that helps with our algorithms. Um, so if you've enjoyed it, please do say so. Or if you hate it, um, let us know. <laughs> yeah, don't leave a review if you hate it. But if you, if you loved it, please let us know. Thank you very much.